Before we started recording, there was some intense chat between two of our <laughs> friends here about bikes, and those were uh, our producer, Nicky Birch, and our guest, Marigold. So, Marigold, are you a keen cyclist? Yes. You have one friend here, if that's the case. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> well, more than one. Yeah, well. throughout, throughout the year, cycling on my single speed. And I need to get the gears on my racer fix so I can get out into the countryside. Oh, lovely. Oh, wow. You're a proper cyclist. Really I don't do sportives or anything, but yeah, I love, I'm a speed junkie, Brilliant. so I like racing along and it keeps me sane, clears my mind. Mm. Do you welcome hills, Marigold? Yes, even though I have a single speed because I love a challenge. Unbelievable. Um, and yeah. so even I think Highgate Hill is probably the worst on a single speed. Tough. Is that possible? That if you get a red light, no. It's pretty horrendous. Yeah, I've done it once. Uh, first, I'm just bowing down because anyone who can, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm anyone who can cycle up Highgate Hill, which is, well, I think it's the second biggest hill in London as opposed to Crystal Palace. I'm not sure which is, I think it's smaller, but yeah, to cycle up there on a single speed is pretty much, yeah, it's impressive. Um, my question was, how fast as a speed junkie can you get from Peckham to Kentish Town? Oh, well, I know exactly because last Christmas I didn't realise I was supposed to be working in the Owl and I was all setting down for a happy day of working from home when Gary, the beloved bookshop manager of the Owl, messaged me at half nine to say, oh, I think you're supposed to be working the Owl today. And I did it in 35 minutes, which Amazing. I don't quite know how I managed to do that. But very thank very you. Very good, Marigold. Um, that is very impressive. I was not a pretty sight, I must admit, by the time I got there. <laughs> <laughs> bookseller. Yeah. <laughs> I just think I should state at this point that uh, John rides a penny farthing and I ride a bone shaker. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, as the hosts of this podcast, <laughs> nothing, as you say, nothing with gears or indeed tires. <laughs> it's quite Italian, oh, this talk about cycling. That's true. Yeah, very Italian. Bicycle thieves. I would have thought that the uh, the dad in the family lexicon would be up for an mm -hmm. alpine adventure, wouldn't he? Or up the Dolomites. He would absolutely not wear lycra. No. <laughs> yeah, he's not a man, he's not a man who's going to wear lycra. Well, this wasn't the direction I expected this show to go in, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm pleased. Everyone's invested. Good. All right. Should we, um, should we start? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us on a northern Italian hillside in the late 1920s. We're wearing hobnailed boots greased with whale fat, balaclava helmets and snow goggles, even though it's quite warm and sunny. Our pockets bulge with pears and hard-boiled eggs, and the red-haired man striding ahead of us in a threadbare, rust-coloured wool jacket stops every now and then to shout, nitwits and jackasses. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and today we are joined by two guests making their backlisted debuts. Hello, Emily Rhodes and Marigold Atkey. Hello. 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 Thanks for having us on. Oh, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's do your introductions. Emily, now, this, now, look, I'm going to ask questions as we go along because there's okay. all elements of the, your intros that, that to me, make <laughs> little to no sense. But we'll interrogate, <laughs> we'll interrogate them as they go on. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Okay. Em <laughs> no, it's not, it, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't want to put you on the back foot. Anyway, Emily runs Emily's Walking Book Club which meets monthly Amazing. to talk about books while walking on Hampstead Heath. Now, let's. here's the first thing. Okay. To me, 
reading and going outdoors are not compatible with one another, and that's the appeal of reading. So what? What do you do? You read from the books while you're walking around Hampstead Heath to one another. Yeah, good question. I mean, I think if we were all reading from the books while we walked around Hampstead Heath, we w- there have occasionally been sort of falls down potholes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, um, in general, pe- people have read the book beforehand. And then just like at a normal book club, you discuss the book. But rather than sitting around a table or, um, I don't know, someone's living room, you're walking while you talk. Oh, plein air. I love it. Exactly. The conversations are a bit easier because you're walking, you're sort of side by side with someone. It also means you can have lots of conversations at once because um, at each meeting we get, say, 30 to 50 people. We obviously all sort of splinter into little groups of two, three, four, five as we chat. And then we kind of come together at certain points and I I sort of guide the discussion. So I, I launch mm. everyone off on a question or a subject and everyone sort of natter, natter, natter about that as we walk, get to the mixed bathing pond, stop, um, regroup, sort of go over what people have said. Maybe I read a bit out while standing still, not walking. And then <laughs> we kind of go off on the next one. I love the idea of being able to just walk off if somebody says something I disagree with. this sounds quite like a dating thing as well has there been any romances off the back of this funny you should say that nikki um so the the funny thing is like the membership is like 95 percent female women of all ages yeah anything from teenagers up to people in their 80s but almost all women very few men and um when, when it sort of was beginning in its infancy after about a year or so we got a man who arrived um, and like, all the, the women fool. sort of pounced. But, um, but the, what was completely outrageous was that that one time this new woman came and she was dressed completely inappropriately for a walk on the heath. You know, not sensible shoes. Well, normally people are wearing, I don't know, trainers or wellies, you yeah. know, zip up, you know, sort of prepared to battle the elements. This lady, she looked like she'd stepped out of the 50s. You know, she had one on one of those sort of puffy skirts, these little shoes that, you know, I'm surprised they didn't fall apart. And um, she just sort of nabbed him. She did not mix. Jump the key. Stop. She <laughs> yeah. jumped the key. And they left together and they never came again. Aww. Wow. <laughs> wow. Job done. What was the book? Oh, God, I wish I could remember. I don't think either of them had even read the book. It was completely ah, outrageous. Perfect. <laughs> Hilarious. Feels like an amazing business model in there somewhere. There's nearly a thousand members of this thing. There's like yeah. a stampede across the heath <laughs> yeah. of. Uh, three yeah. women. Shouting, I couldn't relate to it to one another. Um, I found those characters unlikable, pushes in the pond. I should ask you, if people are interested in joining, where can they find you? Yes, so um, the best thing is to sign up to the newsletter, which is at emilyswalkingbookclub.substack.com. It's got all the details of the next walks and the next books and also kind of interesting links to 
other things the author's written. Um, Great. They're quite content rich. Right. No no further questions, yes. Your Honour. Okay. Uh, Emily also runs a, a book club for Age UK Camden, and she writes about books in the arts to various publications, including the FT, The Spectator and The Guardian. Let us now turn to Marigold. Marigold Atkey is a publisher at Daunt Books, home to such backlisted favourites as Dorothy Baker's Cassandra at the Wedding. That's a, that's proved to be a very popular title. Yeah, people love that book. I hope there's been a spike in your turnover. Yeah, there Marigold. has been, yeah. That's good. Wow, has yeah, there? Really? That's what yeah. we like to hear. Yeah. God, that's great. And uh, Barbara Cummings, the vet's daughter. Barbara, this is so nice to, that you're bringing back yeah. some of the Barbara Cummings novels. And we're, we're pursuing the rights of another one with the terrifying title, The Skin Chair, I think it's... Oh, skin Chair, that's yeah, the it's great one. Book. Good great Lord. Book. That's, that's quite oh, that's, rare that's, at the That's brilliant. I think there's more of her books in print now than at any time since yeah. oh, the 80s. I think oh, I think that's, that's right. I think that I think nearly everything is available, and if you can get the skin chairs, that would be incredible. That's such a horrid book. Bring it yeah. back. Um, <laughs> really nightmare. It's got an amazing scene with a monkey. Anyone who's read it will know what I'm talking about. Oh, it's horrible. Great. Um, <laughs> Marigold began her publishing career at literary agency David Heim Associates, where, as well as working with authors such as J.M. Kurtzeyer and Stephen Fry, she looked after estates, including those of Graham Greene, Muriel Spark and Dylan Thomas. Also a few backlisted names in there. Fast forward through editorial positions at Bloomsbury, William Collins and Fourth Estate. And she's been at Daunt Books for pretty much bang on a year. She, atten- she goes to their office. You've already worked this out, everybody. In beneath the Owl Bookshop, the wonderful Owl Bookshop in Kentish Town. She gets there on her bike. She breaks the law. She breaks <laughs> speed records. It's um, also, it's, I'm actually it's very well de- behaved. <laughs> it's also delightful to, to meet someone who was an agent who's become a publisher. It's almost it's, quite it's, the, yeah. it's almost always mm-hmm. the other way around. Yeah. And, um, and do you do you consider that to have been a a, move, a happy decision, Marigold? Oh, Obviously yeah, you don't absolutely. Have to spill your guts no, no, here, no. but no. I always hated the moment of handing over a book to the yeah. publisher, my baby. You get to be more of a control freak, I think, as an editor. <laughs> yep. And your authors at Daunt include Brandon Taylor, Scholastic Mukasonga, and reissues, including you're looking after MFK Fisher. There ought to be a little backlisted bell here we ring every yeah. time. <laughs> MFK Bingo. Fisher and Natalia Ginsburg. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my predecessors have done an extremely classy job of building up the Daunt list because it's only 10 years, 10 years old. Yeah, oh, like, we, we love it, yeah. as you as you know. Yeah. I do want to, one of the things I thought I'd like to talk about when we get into the main body of the show is actually the, because I think listeners will find it very interesting, the, the strategy and tactics, both of those things, about bringing back the list of a, an author mm. from the past and making yeah. them and it feel really contemporary, which is what Dawn's have done really successfully with Ginsburg. Um, and I have some theories that I would like to run past you. You can either confirm or deny them. We'll see. We'll see. Yes. So the book we're here to discuss is Family Lexicon, a novel come memoir by Natalia Ginsberg, translated from the Italian by Jenny McPhee for the new edition, published in 2017 by Daunt Books in the UK and New York Review of Books Classics in the US. The book was originally published in 1963 as Lessico Familiare by the distinguished Italian publishing house Giulio Einaudi Editore. 
It became an immediate bestseller and won that year's Strega Prize for Fiction. And it was first translated into English in 1967. It was published by the Hogarth Press as Family Sayings. Despite being set during the rise of fascism in Italy, Ginsberg's narrative focuses on the domestic arrangements of her own eccentric family rather than attempting the grand sweep of political history. In recent years, the republication of her work in English by Daunt Books and NYRB Classics in the US have brought her a new generation of readers, including the novelist Rachel Cusk, who has written that Ginsberg gives us a new template for the female voice and an idea of what it might sound like. Anyway, more of that. Before we plunge into the nitwitteries and doodledums of middle-class life in 1930s Turin, Andy, what dribble-drams have you been reading this week? I've been reading a book by the singer Vashti Bunyan, which was published by White Rabbit in April. It's a memoir of her uh, life and career, but mostly what happened to her in the 1960s. I don't know how many of you know Vashti's records. She made an album in the late 60s, which came out in 1970, called Just Another Diamond Day, which is a very beautiful and at one time obscure record, but it was reissued in the year 2000 and has gone on to become something of a modern classic and gave Vashti the career that she'd never really had. Uh, She'd made that one record and disappeared, but she came back. She made an album in 2005 produced by Max Richter called Look Aftering, and then another one that she recorded herself called Heart Leap in 2014. Both... Very beautiful records. I find her and the story of how she made her music totally fascinating. She made a few singles in the 1960s, none of which really took. And then she decided, as you did in that era, that what she would do was instead of being trying to be a pop star, she would walk to Scotland to live in a cottage owned by Donovan. Um, she would walk from uh, Surrey to the Outer Hebrides. And that is exactly what she did, and that's what this book is about. It's about her and her then partner, their dogs and their horse, travelling through England and Scotland in the late 1960s. And that's what a lot of the songs on Just Another Diamond Day are about. They describe that journey. And uh, I saw Vashti Bunyan playing a concert a few weeks ago at the Barbican in London. And it was very moving to see her uh, as a septuagenarian playing songs that she wrote in her early 20s. And saying, she quite frequently said before the song, this isn't, what this describes is not what the journey was like, it's what I hoped it would be and wasn't. And the book is a description of what the journey was like. And actually, it's a tremendously melancholy book. Most of it is saying her mother had died shortly before she made this decision. And in retrospect, she says, well, I shouldn't have, somebody should have been watching out for me and nobody was. And what I most, and what she seems to remember about the journey is how wet and cold most of it was and how it took years You know, I say it, the phrase, and then she walked from London to the Outer Hebrides like like you could do it. Like you could do it in 40 minutes, like the LP describes. But of course it doesn't. It took literally years to do. Did she do it all in one go? They wintered in a couple of places, but mostly they just kept 
plodding, clip-clopping forward, playing the odd song. She comes back to London and goes to Sound Techniques, I think, in Chelsea to record Just Another Diamond Day. It's produced by Joe Boyd. There are members of Fairport Convention playing on it, none of whom she'd never even heard of Fairport Convention. <laughs> so what you hear on the record is someone who's come off the road, gone to Chelsea in the late 60s, made this incredible music that then disappears for 30 years. I love the book anyway. It's a really beautiful book. A book about someone who is lost. And I think a lot of people, perhaps in midlife, would really relate to this book. No spoilers. But the, the note of melancholy is sounded all the way through this book. And of course, that's, that's all I'm really interested in, sitting indoors <laughs> being melancholy. So uh, I enjoyed it very much. I'm going to read you a little bit. This this bit this is this chapter is called Islington High Street, London, July nineteen sixty eight. And what you should know is uh, she's acquired a caravan and a horse called Betsy at this point. I wore my late aunt's nineteen thirties nightdress, nothing else, nothing on my feet, and a pink crepe bias cut flower printed nightdress long enough to trip me if I didn't hold it up. My hair was long too, dark brown, unbrushed and I led a fat black horse with a white star on her forehead, a short tail, and one missing shoe. My main concern was that she should not tread on my toes, but her big feet were always thoughtfully placed. Later on, I would watch her as she ate from a bucket of oats in a farmyard with small yellow chicks pecking up the grains that spilled from her mouth. She trod carefully between them all. My feet had always been safe. Right now, we needed a blacksmith, and our directions took us down Islington High Street <laughs> with people staring out of buses and stopping on the pavements to watch us go by as we looked for the Whitbread Brewery. There, we were told, they had a stable of grey shire horses who, six at a time, pulled the giant drays around the streets delivering barrels of ale to the pubs. These horses had their own forge up in the far corner of their stable, a stable as large in scale as they were with their names like High, Gog and Magog and their feet the size of frying pans. Hello, Bess, said the blacksmith as we walked towards the forge. The dusty sun in my eyes from the big high windows. We had thought her name was Betsy. The Romany Alfie Ball who had sold her to us the day before had called her Betsy. Nah, said the blacksmith, that's old Bess, I'd know her anywhere. <laughs> old? <laughs> <laughs> we'd had a friend who knew about horses give her a looking over and she'd been pronounced young enough about 10 maybe but it turned out that Bess must have been born before the law against docking horses tails was passed making her 20 or more the blacksmith showed us how her teeth proved his point she had seemingly lived her long life out on the streets of London pulling delivery vans bakers, grocers and latterly a flower seller had all taught her traffic wisdom which was just as well for us when she stopped at traffic lights and went the right way round roundabouts. The Smith, I mean, the thing is, I've got to say, is you read this, you think, how is she ever going to get to Scotland? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the misconceived nature of the enterprise. Anyway, the Smith made four shoes of iron red hot from the fire, banging them into shape on the anvil, whilst telling us she would need them specially built up on account of her habit of turning her back feet with every step. This would wear her shoes down quickly, he said. He didn't ask us for any money, just a tune or a song. Robert looked at me, the singer, but I turned my head away. Robert had a harmonica in his pocket, 
and so played a bit of a tune and danced round the stable in his boots with the flapping soles. I watched through my fingers in my pink nightdress, thinking how can a grown man dance like that as if round a toadstool without feeling daft. He didn't mind at all. I think at that moment he thought himself a little person, small and elven with leggings and perfectly pointed soft green shoes. Everyone there, the blacksmith, the stable boys and the dray drivers all enjoyed the show. We made our grateful goodbyes and I led Betsy, who would be Bess from now on, her real old name, the little old horse we had thought so large that morning, out past the soaring grey backsides of the Whitbread Shires and into the Islington streets. Brilliant. Amazing. So uh, I'm sorry about that went on a bit, but it's so beautiful and so evocative. Imagine Islington had a brewery and a, and a blacksmith in 1966. I mean, I live not far from Islington High Street. That's completely mind-blowing. This horse being a delivery horse. You know, what? this is in the 60s and... Dre horses, yeah. Well, it was all fields around there when you were a girl, Emily. <laughs> John, what have you been, what have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading a collection of stories, a debut collection of stories by a young Irish writer called Sheila Armstrong. The book is called How to Gut a Fish, and it's published in February, I think, and uh, has had some good reviews. Um, and it is published by Bloomsbury. We've been reading a lot of short stories this year, um, and a lot of, I think, really strong and amazing collections. But this one really, really stuck in my head. I mean, it's that thing sometimes in short stories... I get annoyed by the uh, the clumsy use of, you know, deus ex machina or, or the use of kind of deliberately shocking uh, bits of plot to, to kind of keep you paying attention. But she writes with such, I mean, really striking originality that, uh, and a lot of these stories are quite, I mean, extremely dark. She's, I think, from Sligo in the west of Ireland. So a lot of them are set in, in Ireland, a lot of them are set in rural locations. I'm now going to read a tiny little bit from the title story. But there's a hole in a field on a kind of ancient site which just swallows people. Very hard to get you to believe that a, a hole in a, in a field can swallow people up without you, uh, without you kind of rebelling. There is another scene where there's a woman who's trussed up, who, a young girl who's trussed up, at a car boot sale, who uh, and people are bidding for various uh, various organs. Um, it's as I say, it's it's dark, it's macabre, but it's brilliantly done. It reminded me, I suppose, a bit very early Ian McEwan, the very early stories. It sounds like Sarah Hall to me. Like yeah, a bit, but he pushes it even further, I think, than Sarah Hall. Mm. The one thing I do know, she's in a, a writing group called Check Off or Fuck Off, which I. I I, oh, I really want to be. Uh, that's good. I mean, that, I re- yeah, that, that I, I really, really. I, although there are some grim things in this book, I, I came away with absolutely excited in a way that I don't. I'm, I'm not often as excited by debut collections as I was by this. I'm just going to read you. So, how to gut a fish is 26. It's basically 26 bullet points. Uh, the story is presented in that way. And I'm just going to read you the first couple so you get a feel for the, the brilliance yeah. of her language. I mean, it's the, it's the language that's, that carries the whole thing, I think. One, how to gut a fish. One, first, the feel of the salt in the ridges round your fingernails, the burnt itch of it, the dried white flakes scattered across the empty deck of your father's boat. 
Now take the handle of your knife and turn it round. Set the blade back to back with the spine of the mackerel and scrape. A thousand eyelids will come off, a hundred insect skins, a rainbow of purple and blue and green. Rub, rub, rub until the skin is smooth, or at least smoother. No need to fuss. You never get them all, no matter how you try. Your father once told you if you swallowed a scale, a fish would take seed in your belly and grow. Two. Now, blunt your arms into instruments and blunt your heart to the little mouth's gasping. Don't forget that stressed fish taste awful, bitter and tough, so don't delay, kill it quickly. But you know your own soul. If it brought in more bookings, you'd set up a system of slow-motion death on the deck of the Mola Mola, that's his boat, with the complicated water wheels and staggered buckets and cages for dry drowning. When you visited the dockside markets at Sakai Minato, you saw a fisherman make a careful cut into a yellowtail's head, take a wire and spike it down the spinal cord. No time for the muscles to flex and stiffen, for panic to turn to bitterness. A little flip of the tail and then it was done. Mercy disguised as cruelty, a quick and shuddering end. The blood coloured a bowl of water from clear to rose pink to crimson. Ikejime, the Japanese call it, a benediction. You'd like to learn how to kill fish this way, as a party trick, but you know your few remaining five-star reviews would trickle away. The mouths of mothers would turn down at the corners, their noses wrinkled like elephant skin, even as their children fling guts at the seagulls. Better the old way. Better to break a fish's spine across the gunnels. 3. Find a prayer as the little death whispers away across the deck and over your shoulders into the sunset. Look your fish in the eye. They say the last thing a man sees is imprinted on his pupil. You check every catch this way for your own reflection, but there's only a dark hole of fright. You switch your gaze from the fish to the sky as the wind picks up. The cold Atlantic air is splitting into two and streaming around the anchored bow of the Mola Mola. And uh, it's that story ends up in a very different place <laughs> to where it starts. It does tell you exactly how to gut a fish in, in passing, but ah, it ends so up in a very... So it's both, uh, both poetic and practical. That's <laughs> both poetic and practical. Yeah, really, really exciting. Um, and Who's that published by? And it's published by Bloomsbury, and it's How to Gut a Fish by Sheila Armstrong. It also, it has, you can't see it on this, but it has a really beautiful, this is a proof, has a really beautiful jacket of fish scales I'm really as they say a writer to look out for and she's going to write many more brilliant books I think have you gutted a fish since reading that book um (laughs) (laughs) I have not since I found it inspiring yes I have I have gutted many fish in my time and uh, let me say that the the advice is 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 really practical (laughs) sound (laughs) should you find yourself Staring into the hollow eyes of a mackerel. <laughs> it's, a, it's a useful thing. We'll be back in just a sec. was by Valtaro Musette and it came out on Columbia Records as a 78 in 1946. Uh, it's Italian and it's called Old Memories, 
which seemed so perfect for the book that we're discussing today, Family Lexicon by Natalia Ginsberg. We uh, slightly changed the rules of Backlisted, because we can, because we run it, um, to invite Marigold and Emily in to talk with us about this book. But, John, this was your idea. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but but I, 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 it's something we very rarely do, and I wondered why, what it was about Family Lexicon that grabbed you to the extent that you said, we should really, we should get in there and make a show about this. I think it's quite... It's quite rare to read a book that is set in a, a period of historical turbulence. I mean, this is Italy in the in the thirties, the rise of fascism, the rise of Mussolini. I I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting what I got, which is the most brilliant kind of timeless portrayal of of how the family dynamics work. I mean, the family lexicon or, or family sayings. It's sort of built around the, uh, the, the 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 parents who are kind of amazing double act. The father who is calling everybody nitwits and jackasses and even worse things than that, and and the mother who's always telling sort of stories. And I it it made me I found it incredibly moving, and um, also quite kind of revealing. In and you realise that that yes people do somehow survive consoling fictions about mm. one's family is what enable people to survive through the absolute worst and she she went through she suffered terribly you know various members of the family died but it, it's the writing again it's so it's so extraordinarily written well written it's very interesting you say that it spoke to you of the moment you know the uh, the unhappy times through which we're yeah. through which we're living marigold you look after the ginsburg titles the backlist for daunt what do you think it is about her writing that seems to have spoken to people in the last few years? I think the fact that she's a woman writing from the experience of experiencing war and fascism, but from the scene of, from the domestic scene. And I think in the past, we've tended to have the men on the front. Um, and the drama of that. And I wonder whether it is, obviously we are, for decades we've been turning to the women writers more, both current and ones from the past. But I wonder if we're more open to more intimate stories now, perhaps. And I don't know whether that is partly, I do think social media and podcasts have been crucial in um, saving many books from from being forgotten because word of mouth is so much stronger. People seem more at ease with fiction in translation than the the British famously of terribly resistant or have yeah. been. But I look at the success of Natalia Ginsburg's books: Clarice the Spectre, Torve Ditlevson, Elsa Moranti. You know that they, they there seems to be a, a willingness to explore in a way that seems quite new to me. I don't know what you think. I completely agree. Uh, I think the Tove Dip Levson uh, were in particular, I really remember seeing, I think they've changed the cover since, but those beautiful, I think they're pale pink. There was a trilogy and they're very slim. I know Family Lexicon is actually one of the longer Ginsburgs, but I think people are more willing to take yeah, a risk on a novella. I know I am. And readers understand more. It's not that we copy the covers of other of other publishers but I think it helps 
that there's an instant recognition of what to expect perhaps from a book. So there is that look of a photo with the frame, the cream mm, mm-hmm. or pale colour around it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there was the brilliant Penguin Modern Classics a few years ago, which again had the photo and then the very striking pattern. So you had that kind of the sense of era and setting, but then you had the kind of the fresh, clean, unexpected design around it. We'll we'll come back to this time. I'm endlessly fascinated by this topic. Mm. Is there also a a sort of feeling, Marigold, that, um, you know, every, everyone feels like at the moment we're living through a sort of moment of historical significance. Uh-huh. It feels like very sort of frightening and different at the moment to how it felt, say, a decade ago, I would say. And, you know, do we then, do you think people are looking back to another politically turbulent time to try and sort of learn from the past I think completely reading family lexicon and going back over little virtues in particular Mm. I couldn't help but think of everybody who's you know not just in the Ukraine in Ukraine but everywhere across the world you know again we we published the French Rwandan author Scholastic Mukasonga who fled Rwanda during the genocide and she focuses on her mother's experience as well and how can you not connect the literature of the past to the experiences of people now and i think Absolutely. again we're more, we're more aware of the experiences of the normal person it's far harder to distance mm, yourself from war mm. now i think because people have their phones yeah. and everything news yeah, yeah. is ongoing the whole time but you also have citizens reporting so it's not just the politicians voices you're hearing you're hearing the voices of people on the street you're seeing the photos of the kids with cats in you know underground stations um, you're seeing all sides of the experiences. Yeah. I also feel perhaps there's a thing going on where the the home, the British home front, is such a well mapped territory yeah. that after mm-hmm. all this time, people are beginning to turn their eyes towards other parts of the world, other homes. There are the homes. There is not mm-hmm. only one home front, right? And um, um, Emily, I must ask you: you reviewed Family Lexicon when it was republished five years ago yes, in the Guardian. Right. Was that the first Ginsburg that you'd read? Yeah, it was the first Ginsberg I read, but not the first one I saw. I um, I actually also used to work at Daunt but as a bookseller. And um, I think at the time that Little Virtues was published, I think that was the first one that Daunt published, yeah. right? Um, I think it was on maternity leave. And I mean, Daunt is just such a lovely place to work. And it always feels very kind of welcoming, almost like, sort of family and and you know when I when I was off for mat leave you know in the wilds of having a baby and <laughs> feeling quite alone I'd often find myself accidentally happening to pass the bookshop sort of pop in <laughs> and, <laughs> and talk to someone about books um you know instead of nappies and I um on one such occasion popped into Marlebin and um you know, there was everyone, including Brett, the wonderful manager of the shop. And they, there was a massive display of Little Virtues. And he said, he said, you know, this is one that's actually doing really well. And show me Little Virtues. And I thought, oh, that looks really interesting. Um, and kind of clocked it. But unfortunately didn't read it because, you know, at the time I was getting no sleep and <laughs> couldn't really read much at all. Um, but then um, I was also, I... I 
stopped working at dawn mostly to pursue a career in freelance journalism and as a freelance journalist who reviews books you get sent a lot of books in the post which is really nice and when family lexicon arrived on my doormat um I instantly recognised it so it was jacketed very similar in similar design to the original jacket of Little Virtues and I sort of went straight back to that chat with Brett in the shop and thought oh yes this is the book that was doing mm. re- this it's just it's from it's by the same author you know Always I'm gonna have a look and I I started reading it and it was just so unlike anything else I'd read and those voices that just leap off the page at you you can hear the father you can you can really hear them you feel like you're at that kitchen table with them and so I sent an email to my editor at the Guardian Justine Jordan that's the other problem as I'm sure you're all familiar with trying to review a book that's a reissue or you know an old book rather than something by a living author is incredibly hard. Very few literary editors want to give space to that. But I felt that Justine might say yes. And um, yeah, sure enough, a few days later, she said, yes, great. And well, I'm I'm probably going to read a little bit from The Little Virtues later on, because that's the first one I read. And I absolutely love that book. I've read it a couple of times. Um, so good. Uh, yeah. Uh, the collection of essays. <laughs> but we're talking about family lexicon which has also, as John said, been published, originally, it was originally published in English as Family Sayings and also as thing, The Things We Used to Say. It was published yeah. in, by Carcanet in the 70s. Yeah. Three different translations. So this, this book hasn't really gone away in a sense. It's always been around. It's just gone through different um, iterations and versions. But I'm going to read the blurb. And Marigold, you didn't write this because it was one of your predecessors who wrote it. So that's fine. You can criticise it. <laughs> As, uh, as hard I would never as dream. Like. No. Natalia Ginsberg wrote her masterful autobiographical novel Family Lexicon while living in London in the 1960s. Homesick for her Italian family, she summoned them in this celebration of the routines and rituals, in jokes and insults, and above all, the repeated sayings that make up every family. So that's the lexicon of the title. Giuseppe Levi is a Jewish scientist consumed by his work and a mania for hiking. Impatient and intractable, he is constantly at odds with his impressionable and wistful wife, Lydia, yet he cannot be without her. Together they preside over their five children in a house filled with argument and activity, books and politics, visitors, friends and famous faces. But as their children grow up against the backdrop of Mussolini's Italy, the Levi household must become not only a home, but a stronghold against fascism. Intimate, enchanting and comedic, Family Lexicon is an unforgettable novel about language, memory and the lasting power that family holds over all of us. I would say that is a... 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10, laser-guided <laughs> missile of a blurb, yeah. <laughs> encouraging the reader to, to... Nikki, you've read Family Lexicon. Would you say that that was an accurate depiction of its contents? Yeah, Absolutely. It's all about family life. And actually, when you're when you're reading it, you can't believe that this family actually manages to exist and hasn't sort of disintegrated and split up. And that's kind of amazing, isn't it? It's the way she says near the beginning of the book, we don't meet very often now, my yeah. siblings and I. Not surprised. But when we do, the phrases... In, <laughs> yeah, but when we do, the phrases in this book are the things that are, are our common language. Like, like lightning conductors, aren't they? They kind of bring the past back and... 
Marigold, have you got a bit you could read us so people can get a sense of how she does it? Yeah, I would love to. I'll try not to cry because I find it very moving. My parents had five children. We now live in different cities, some of us in foreign countries, and we don't write to each other often. When we do meet up, we can be indifferent or distracted. But for us, it takes just one word. It takes one word, one sentence, one of the old ones from our childhood, heard and repeated countless times. All it takes is for one of us to say, we haven't come to Bergamo on a military campaign or sulfuric acid stinks the fart. And we immediately (laughs) fall back into our old relationships, our childhood, our youth, all inextricably linked to those words and phrases. If my siblings and I were to find ourselves in a dark cave or among millions of people, just one of those phrases or words would immediately allow us to recognise each other. Those phrases are our Latin, the dictionary of our past. They're like Egyptian or Assyro-Babylonian hieroglyphics, evidence of a vital core that has ceased to exist, but that lives on in its text, saved from the fury of the waters, the corrosion of time. These phrases are the basis of our family unity and will persist as long as we are in the world, recreated and revived in disparate places on the earth whenever one of us says, most eminent Signor Lippmann, and we immediately hear my father's impatient voice ringing in our ears, enough of that story, I've heard it far too many times already. Mm, it's beautiful. The thing is, John, that I like that. So Ginsburg translated Proust into Italian, and and there's a character in Family Lexicon who is a, a an enthusiastic reader of Proust, and in a way, she's using the phrase. Those lexicon of phrases are a kind of Proustian. Yeah, they are the little... exercise, aren't they? They're yeah. they're unlocking a world via a single. Thing, yeah, little Madeleine. Madeleine in this case, yeah, but, yeah. but but phrases. I really like the translation "family lexicon" rather than "family sayings." Yeah, I, th- I think it's closer to mm. the Italian yeah. um, "lessico." And actually, I, I, whenever there's a word that seems really interesting like that, like "lexicon," I um, I go to this great website called Etim Online. <laughs> I don't know if you know it. Indeed, like I do. Many hours wasted yeah. on there. Anyway, the the root of lexicon, the Proto-Indo-European root, is ledge, L-E-G, which I was fascinated to learn means um, to collect or gather. And the derivative of this is to speak, which seems like such a leap. And it's because it comes from this idea of picking out words sort of gathering words meaning Mm. to speak and I felt that that was exactly what happens in this book she she kind of gathers the words she kind of harvests these things and it's lovely and I, I just thought lexicon totally got that John, could I ask you stylistically, like reading this book isn't like watching a Dolmio advert, is it? It's like it's uh, <laughs> it's um, it's more it's more uh, austere yeah. than that. It's it's definitely northern Italian, and it's set in Turin, so it's very urban. It 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 it's interesting that there is a Proustian quality to it. That that you know. That the threads of memory are kind of what, and and names. There's lots and lots of names threaded through the book. I mean, if you wanted to look at it this way, it it gives you a, a kind of a pen portrait of, of the whole of the the kind of anti-fascist move, movement in in Italy for uh, over the, the sort of space of a half a century. But that's not how it 
<clears throat> that's not how it presents itself. It presents itself. I love that idea of gathering, of, as a, of a collection of stories. I mean, it, I, I was thinking about this afternoon. It doesn't, it doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, there's no grand kind of conclusion to the book. There's an amazing little bit, I, I just tiny little passage, which I, I read today, which made me, again, really made me think about the, where we are now. Very occasionally, she starts to reflect on something uh, more profound, um, but she does it in such a light uh, and completely kind of authentic way. It's just a few lines. So she says, we thought the war would immediately turn everyone's lives upside down. Instead, for years, many people remained at home, unaffected, continuing to do what they'd always done. Then, just when everyone thought they'd managed to survive with what little there was to go around, that they weren't going to be all sorts of upheavals, that homes wouldn't be destroyed and people wouldn't have to flee or be persecuted, bombs and mines suddenly exploded everywhere, buildings collapsed and the streets were full of rubble, soldiers and refugees. Soon no one was left who could pretend it wasn't happening, who could close their eyes, plug their ears and hide their heads under a pillow. Those people were all gone. This is what the war was like in Italy. That's it. That's what the war... You feel... This is what the war was like in, in Italy. Italy. What, what a that's sentence. What, that what a sentence to be able to write. I know. That that is brave. That's a very yeah. brave writer who's... Yeah. Or, or, or masterful writer who's that, able to do that. That thing of things turning in an instant that you think you're going to be fine and yeah. then you're not fine. And there's an amazing kind of optimism in the book, isn't there? I, I, I find yeah. it... I like, like you, Marigold, I find the, the book incredibly moving. But funny too, Marigold. Yeah, say? very funny. And I love, I love funny, that the Funny though, end... right? Funny, funny. Yeah, I think it's really funny. Um, Hilarious. I, I mean, the shades, I mean, obviously it's not my family and other animals, there, but there is, I think it's, you know. <laughs> it's, it's very good. There's a, yeah. Yeah, there it's a distant good. relative. It's that kind of, there is an air of shambolic family and they're all yeah. having huge, like quite alarming sounding fights and everything. The father's so funny, but the mother is as well. And the whole novel feels like a texture of a family yeah. mm. and I love that the ending that. we kind of are suddenly I had to check I hadn't missed a page yes because yeah. you just you leave them in the middle of one of Whoa. their classic <laughs> arguments <laughs> or kind of batting around of jokes and it's perfect mm. and very funny I think I think that's exactly right Marigold what I love about the way she's written this is that although in and the extract you read out and, you know, she talks about it being their Latin, this way of um, their own language, it, it feeling it kind of risks sounding quite exclusive. It's actually an incredibly welcoming book. Yeah. You don't feel that you're left out. You're just there at the table kind of eating it all up. <laughs> you're so in there. And I think it it's sometimes being compared to um, The Garden of the Finzi Contini. Yeah. Who's that by? That's by Bassani. Mm -hmm. Giorgio Bassani and um who I think was she friends with him they're certainly in the same kind of scene weren't they they're the family the Finzi Contini family again it's the same you know during the war they make their own language up as well Finzi Contini-esque mm. or something mm -hmm. but there it feels very exclusive you know it feels like they're they're keeping everyone out of their their walled garden the the walled city you know whereas here everyone's welcomed in 
It's very interesting, though, isn't it? Because Ginsburg, in terms of Ginsburg's biography, she's tremendously well-connected. Yeah. It's quite a stunt to pull off the idea that you're just reading about normal people when yes. what she's talking about are the Italian elite of that era, the literary and media elite of that era. These people, the Olivettis, who wander oh, into yes. the, the picture and Cesare Pavese happens to wander through. And you think, well, they, wait a minute, that's a really oh, yeah. famous person who, who's joining us at the table, right? Definitely. She wrote this, uh, as it says on that blurb, it, when she was living in London in the uh, late 50s and early 1960s. And uh, there was a very particular trigger to the style in which this book is written. And we're going to hear the novelist Colm Toybean now tell us, tell us what that is. She has great command over style. She was fascinated by the work of Ivy Compton Burnett, as she must have been when she lived in England by figures like Catherine Mansfield, Elizabeth Bowen, and indeed Muriel Spark, that, that, that some of the dialogue had, this, had that sort of clipped, witty tone. And um, so too in the way she will move characters very, very fast from one emotion to another without much explanation. It's very dramatic, it's very funny, and it's very readable. Yeah, I mean, I, I found that, revelatory she lived in south kensington did you know that she lived yeah. in walking distance of the vna she went into a local bookshop where she discovered the novels of ivy compton burnett a house in its head mother and son parents and children and she became obsessed with the style of ivy compton burnett and she used to john she used to when she w left her house and wandered the streets of south kensington she would fantasise about bumping into Ivy Compton Burnett, who she knew lived nearby. <laughs> I love it. So that she could invite her to dinner uh, uh, and uh, share her particular wit and um, sense of, of dialogue. But that's such... You would never... You would never see that, would you? In, in the plainness of her style does not suggest the highly affected nature of... Ivy Compton Burnett's mm, prose, mm -hmm. but they both use dialogue. They're both very, they let dialogue carry character. I think also the the flip side of the, of being so brilliant with dialogue is she's also so good at um, the silences um, and the things that aren't said. The bit where that's really felt is the beginning of vo Voices of the, shall I read this out? Voices mm. in the Evening. Yeah, do it. I'm out of it. It's, um, Another of her novels. Um, it's the one before Family Lexicon, yeah. Voices in so the So just read just the beginning bit. And again, you really get a feeling of voice here. My mother said, I feel a kind of lump in my throat. It hurts if I swallow. She said, good evening, General. General Sartorio had passed us, raising his hat above his silvery waved hair, a monocle in his eye, and his dog on a lead. My mother said, what a fine head of hair he has at that age. She said, did you notice how ugly the dog has become? I have a kind of vinegary taste in my mouth now and that lump <laughs> hurts me all the time. However, did he discover that I have high blood, blood pressure? Yeah. It has always been low with me, always. She said, good evening, Gigi. General Sartorio's son had passed us with his white Montgomery over his shoulders. He was supporting on one arm a salad bowl covered with a napkin. The other arm was in plaster of Paris and in a sling. He had a really horrid fall. I wonder if he will ever recover the full use of his arm, said my mother. She said, I wonder what he had got in that bowl. One can see that there is a party somewhere, she added, at the Terenzi's, very likely. Everyone who goes has to take something. Nowadays, many people do that. 
she said, but they don't invite you, do they? They don't invite you, she said, because they think that you give yourself airs. You've never been to the tennis club either. If one does not go about and show oneself, people say that such a person is giving himself airs and they don't seek one out anymore. She said, and it goes on and on and on. Mm, yeah. Until finally, yeah, yeah. says, what wife, I said. And you realise all that time, the narrator hasn't said anything. Yeah. The mum has just been going on and on. It's, it's completely ridiculous. So she gets that the, never has she said been so, said so much, you know. I read that novel this weekend and I it's not long, but I kept having to take little breaks in it. Yeah. Because the bombardment of dialogue and characters... That's a thing, Marigold, isn't it, as well? She'd like... You have to be on point, I think. Like with Muriel Spark, John. Yeah. You have to be paying attention. It'd be quite easy to slide past it. Although I also think in Family Lexan, actually, that's part of the joy. It is a bit like... I mean, my mother is very prone to a shaggy dog story, and sometimes <laughs> she talks about characters as though you've known them all your life and you're like, I've never heard of this person, but you know what? I'm just going to go with it. Let's just go with where this is taking me. Mm. And I think that's the joy of family lexicon is that the intellectuals of the age are given the same amount of time on stage as the brilliant housemaids. I mean, she's so brilliant at a comic sketch. She She knows exactly what phrase to give you or what little detail of their physical appearance to instantly give you that little sketch that gives you so much life of that person. But actually, it's kind of fine if you've then forgotten who they are because there's going to be another one for you to mm. um, <laughs> so laugh true. at or laugh with <laughs> quite soon. And I just love, I, I love that, that you, after a while, you, you, it's an amazing thing. You start to feel like you are part of this family. You, yeah. you kind of, you, when Barbizon comes up again in the story, you say, oh, I remember that from earlier. It, and I, I yes. Just, and I, Loads of stuff. It just made me think about things, my ridiculous things my mother would used to say, you know, like, uh, oh, you can tell he's a dentist. Look at the size of his wrists. I mean, it's just, but those, <laughs> that, it captures that kind of, that sort of family surrealism, casual family mm-hmm. surrealism, better than almost any book I've, I've ever read, I think. But I would also say that she is a more um, challenging and experimental writer than she perhaps seems at first the idea of what's going on on the surface is one thing but then the depths are pretty deep underneath that and there's a kind of affect to the style which which it's a good trick to pull off how do you make so warm a style which is so superficially standoffish that's what I feel about her I feel mm. there's so much precision in the choice of character detail, as you were talking about, Marigold, or Emily, as you were saying, with dialogue, because actually what she's doing, she's stepping back from herself as narrator. It's a very interesting technique, I think. And I think that's one of the things that maybe appeals to contemporary readers as well. I have a little quote here from a writer called Sally Rooney. Never who, heard of her. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 she's a, an up-and-coming <laughs> voice. An exciting new voice, John would call her. That's exactly um, what I was going to say. And um, she says this, uh, and she mentions Ginsburg in her last novel, Sally Rooney. And this is what she says about Ginsburg here. She says, when I first read Natalia Ginsburg's work several years ago, I felt as if I were reading something that had been written for me. 
something that had been written almost inside my own head or heart. I was astonished that I had never encountered Ginsburg's works before, that no one knowing me had ever told me about her books. It was as if her writing was a very important secret that I had been waiting all my life to discover. Far more than anything I myself had ever written or even tried to write, her words seemed to express something completely true about my experience of living and about life itself. This kind of transformative encounter with a book is for me very rare, a moment of contact with what seems to be the essence of human existence. Wow. I mean, I imagine wow. the estate of Natalia Ginsburg is jumping up and down with delight. <laughs> that blurb. But that is such a good description from Sally Rooney there about how you one feels about those special writers, those golden writers. What do you think it is? I'm, I just ask you in general, all of you, what is it? I come back to this thing. What is it that is speaking to people now? You know, Natalia Ginsburg has been in print in English on and off for 60 years. But this is her moment. And I'm fascinated as to why this is her moment and why she speaks to readers now. Why are more people reading her? I thought I, I like the space in it, the simplicity of it. Mm. And, mm. And, and it wasn't there wasn't there's not too much colour. There's just everything you need, and nothing else. How would you describe this marigold? It's not an autobiography. How, what is it? I mean, an autobiographical novel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's mm. cop out. It's autofiction before autofiction mm. had been invented. William, William Trevor reviewed this novel when it was first published in English in the sixties, and William Trevor said so. He, he reviews it with "Get This Speak Memory" by Wow Bokoff. Okay, and he says in both cases they are memoirs that bring the novelist's arsenal yeah. to bear. Yeah, I think that's, there are memoirs that's written by novelists on. where novelists do not deprive themselves of the skills that they've learned. And and Ginsburg in this preface to mm. Family Lexicon says, the places, events and people in this book are real. I haven't invented a thing. And each time I found myself slipping into my long-held habits as a novelist and made something up, I was quickly compelled to destroy the invention. But I think that's a double bluff. <laughs> I don't think she made stuff up, but I think, Nikki, how is she making it sing? She's leaving stuff out. You know, she's doing what novelists do. I think there's um, such a vitality to the language and it it feels like such a happy... I mean, it's kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Because this awful thing, awful political turbulence is going on but the the sort of family life feels so happy and um alive and you know it's, it's interesting that she wrote it when she was in London you know looking back kind of there's a there's a nostalgia for this lost time this kind of innocent past in a way or maybe it was the moment that innocence was lost and so little about the war, though, right? It's so amazing. little about the war. The death of Mussolini is just yeah. kind of tossed off in one phrase. It's amazing. You know, Mussolini had died. And in any other novel, that would be a momentous moment. Particularly the father's so anti-Mussolini, you would expect them all to be hearing the news for the first time. And as an editor, I probably would have been like, tell us more. How did you <laughs> feel? And instead, she just was like, Mussolini had died. And I think one of the most astonishing books for me about this novel is how... Her her husband is murdered. 
Yeah, and horribly. You don't you don't mm. you're not allowed into her heart about that. She just lit. She says, "Um, they arrested him twenty days after arrival, and I never saw him again." Like, yeah, I can actually barely say that without crying. Like, she does it in two sentences. What a thing. Two sentences. She thought they were going to start a new life in Rome, and she said, "I arrived feeling positive. I don't quite know why." And then, as you say, twenty days ago. She's this, there's one little thing that she says that I was that is sort of nagged at me, which which you know she's too good a writer to give you a philosophy, as it were, um, in any anything other than the most oblique way. But there's a bit towards the middle of the book where she's she talk, she talks briefly about that what you know the post-war kind of uh, the illusory moment of shared existence. She says, certainly for many years, no one worked at the job they planned on and trained for, everybody believing that they could and must do a thousand jobs all at once. And much time passed before everyone took back on his shoulders his profession and accepted the burden, the exhaustion and the loneliness of the daily grind, which is the only way we have of participating in each other's lives, Mm -hmm. each of us lost and trapped in our own parallel solitude. Thought, wow, that is wow. That's that's yeah. That's sort of the the melancholy. There is melancholy at the, at the heart of the book, but she doesn't she doesn't let she doesn't let that dominate the narrative. It's extraordinary, extraordinary writing. Well, listen, I think we should hear from Natalia Ginsburg. Uh, I've got. She's been in the other room all this whole time. <laughs> and she's just here. She no. This is um. So this is a clip from, it's in Italian, everybody. So you'll have to, you can more or less work out most of what she's saying, but she's actually talking about family lexicon and she's on an Italian arts programme in 1964. So I've, I left the theme music in. It's very, it's very evocative uh, and the opening question. So here it is, Natalia Ginsburg talking about family lexicon in 1964. And if she says something offensive, we don't actually know exactly what she says. So apologies in <laughs> Nel suo ultimo libro, Lessico Familiare, gli avvenimenti sono osservati e descritti dal punto di vista, come dire, di una ragazzina. Questo punto di vista non sembra modificarsi sostanzialmente nonostante il passare degli anni. Cosa può dirci a questo proposito? È che il mio libro Lessico Familiare non è un'autobiografia, è un libro che racconta le persone della mia vita, non la mia vita. Io intendevo non essere un personaggio in questo libro, intendevo essere semplicemente un testimone. Quindi il mio personaggio io l'ho ignorato quasi, sta nell'ombra, io ho detto quasi nulla di me. Non so, potrei dire, non so, eh, ad esempio Rabelais o Stendhal, scrittori come Rabelais o Stendhal, erano, sono degli scrittori estremamente felici perché la loro fantasia si muove libera, è un mondo che si muove, è una fantasia piena di vitalità e di sangue e invece, non so se facciamo un esempio proprio nostro, contemporaneo, ad esempio il libro uscito adesso di Giuseppe Berto, Il mare oscuro, è un libro che è testimonianza di una profonda infelicità perché lui non, non alza mai gli occhi da sé. Ora, non, non è che faccio nessun apprezzamento di valori, voglio solo dire che c'è una, 
c'è un rischio nell'una e nell'altra nell'una e nell'altra nell'uno e nell'altro stato d'animo c'è un rischio I think that's beautiful though I know I didn't un- I mean I understood Stendhal uh, yeah. and, uh, and autobiographer I think yeah. uh, probably that translates but um It's a book about people, not about her. It's not not an autobiography. That's really interesting. Mm. People in my life, not my life. That's the story of people in my life, not Mm. the story of my life. So I'd like to ask Marigold, Emily was talking earlier about how hard it is to get review coverage for republished books. Maybe you weren't privy to these conversations, but do you think the success of Elena Ferrante had anything to do with Daunt's decision to re-promote i mean, it's not like these were newly commissioned translations for the most part. I know some of them are, but but they they've hoovered up things which were re- originally published in the 60s, 70s and 80s yeah. and presented it as a list. And I wonder whether readers' enthusiasm for Ante, for Ante Fever. Absolutely. That must, I'm sure that must have played a part. And actually, I think the success of the Ferranti novels will have played into the courage of publishers to buy other books in translation, not just Italian novels. I think it showed a willingness in the public to read novels in translation. And so, of course, it helped that it was a woman writing about Italy in that particular era. Um, So there was that similarity. But also just writer after writer keeps on coming out as a fan of Ginsberg. It's very Mm. helpful. I mean, we've we've heard from Colin Toybin and Sally Rooney and... Rachel uh, Cusk. Rachel Cusk and Tessa Claire Louise Bennett, Bennett, Tessa yeah. Hadley. I mean, it's yeah. top table people. Yeah. Um, and you and Dawn to bring back all our yesterdays in the summer, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, which is, I'm not just saying this, it's really one of my favourites because I'm I'm deeply sentimental. As, as has become apparent, given I've always cried twice, but um, it's all about how to be good. And so right now, like, mm. what is more mm. important than a novel about community? Emily, why do you think... I mean, you form a bookseller amongst your various hats. Mm. Do you think Ferrante had anything to do with why people are reading Ginsberg now? Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, the UK is sort of famously rubbish at reading and translation, but it, it is improving. I suppose I have always enjoyed reading and translation, and increasingly so, perhaps because in part of the feeling of claustrophobia that has descended um mm. through brexit the lockdowns um you know I, for me personally also having children young children makes you know your world can feel quite small can i just say uh, uh, as well it's actually one of my very favorite things about the book world um that for all my complaining about and frustration with the public that um paradoxically it's the public who make it so interesting yeah it's the public's decision that they want to read these things regardless of what publishers put in front of them they decide what they want to read and the truth of it is you know daunt or penguin or nyrb or whoever can put things into shops but it's the public who decide if they want to read it or not. And this this upswing, this upsurge in interest in translative fiction. I mean, John, you you worked for pub were publisher at Harville for mm. many years, who well, were years. one of the pioneering publishers in the UK yeah. for fiction in translation. And 
feels like a different landscape now. I think it does, and I think a, a lot of the, I mean, I think there is something, there is something that Eleanor Ferranti and the fact that more more women are being translated, I think, is. I mean, there were always women on the Harville list, but it's definitely feels like there's been a sea change. It does feel to me like these stories, they really, really don't don't feel dated at all. You don't feel like you're you're, you're reading, uh, you know, 1960s or, 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 or fiction. You, you you feel like you're reading something mm. that is that is so beautifully wrought and clear. It it's it's sort of timeless. I think the thing that's so interesting about her is this for me is the alchemy of the relationship between the author, the publisher, the backlist, the public, yeah. reviewers, right? That Natalia Ginsburg's work has been available in in English in various versions for 60 years, but it's a particularly interesting combination of factors that has brought her to the fore in the last few years. She was a. I mean, she had a. She had plays at the Old Vic in the sixties. It's not like she was obscure. She wasn't. She was. She. She was, a, a leading Italian cultural figure, and was seen as such by other countries at the time. But nevertheless, the last few years, changes in what people want to read, publishers' ability to put it in front of them. It's sort of magical. It's the thing, and and you can't control it, and you can't predict it. The credit really lies with Natalia Ginsburg, not with <laughs> any of us or any of the, our publishers or readers or anything. It's the work. The work will find its level eventually, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. I'm afraid that's where we must leave the large, unforgettable Levy family. Huge thanks to Emily and Marigold for introducing us to the intricacy and beauty of Natalia Ginsburg's work, to Nikki Birch for making us sound like we're really all in the same room, and to Unbound for making a bordello out of everything. You can download all 161 previous episodes <laughs> of Backlisted. Plus, follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid-for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear Backlisted episodes early. And for considerably less than the price of a new woolen sweater from Newburgh's, lot listeners get two extra lot listeners a month, our very own salon, where we get to conspire about the books, films and music we've been secretly consuming in the previous fortnight. Uh, lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's selection is... Andrew Barker, Claire Collins, Jake Triloa, Gavin... Ross McClay. <laughs> I'm saying Gavin as well because we got no surname. Gavin, Gavin. Ross McClay, Jean McKenzie, Raihana Rahman and Jeffrey Notkin. Thank you to all our patrons for enabling us to continue to do what we love doing. 
Uh, Marigold and Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been glorious. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Really enjoyed Emily, it. is there anything uh, you would like to add? Any last message you would like to leave for the descendants of Natalia Ginsburg about their <laughs> forebear or anything you want to recommend to listeners? Gosh, I loved this book of hers. The Little Virtues is something I'm going to read again and again and again she's so wise in it and so wise about um food and parenting and all sorts of other things i would also recommend her novel the dry heart and the road okay. to the city which um again again very, they're very short but they're sort of like bullets you know they really mm-hmm. hit home mm-hmm. and actually i recently came across a really brilliant Italian book called A Girl Returned by Donatella di Pietrantonio. It's published by Europa, who also published um, Ferranti. Um, I also reviewed it for The Guardian, but it's it's again a sort of slim, beautiful novel that really captures something special about Italy, I think, which, you know, you might want to continue right, reading great. with. Yeah. Pen, pen and piece of paper, everybody. <laughs> and Marigold Atkey, the human being behind the publishing professional... <laughs> Well, what what would you like to leave us with? Is there anything we didn't say or anything you would like to say about Natalia Ginsburg? I think actually em- Emily touched on it briefly there, but I think Natalia Ginsburg writes brilliantly on motherhood. I'm not a mother and I have no intention of being a mother, and but it, I find it immensely reassuring to find these voices being very pragmatic about their children, finding it a relief to escape from them, but also <laughs> loving them nonetheless. I all mm. there's mothers in all shapes and forms in Natalie Ginsburg's writing. I think the dry heart is a very good gateway drug to Ginsburg. It starts off with a bang <laughs> and is short, sharp and delicious and nasty. John, I feel I I've read half a dozen books by Natalia Ginsburg and from various points in her career, I really loved this one that you chose, and I really love little virtues but yeah. i'd like to make a call out for a couple of novellas published by myrb called valentino and sagittarius yeah. yes. sagittarius particularly is hilarious and mean in a way that ginsburg i think doesn't do later in her career i really enjoyed that it was a very very good book johnny is there anything you would like to add just to say uh, for, for people who are interested to, to actually see and listen to natalia ginsburg she plays the woman who anoints Jesus with expensive perfume and gets told off in Pasolini's gospel according to St Matthew which I watched this Easter I uh, is I always watch it every Easter I find it's a beautiful moving film but it's not until this Easter that I that I made the connection that the Natalia Ginsburg in that was the Natalia Ginsburg that we were preparing a podcast for so I'll put a link in on the website for the film for those of you well thanks everyone uh uh I've We've thoroughly enjoyed this today. Um, For once, listeners, there's loads of this writer's books available (laughs) all over the world. (laughs) So you can just go and get them or borrow them or read them or whatever. So anyway, Uh, John, see you next time. Yeah, see you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks ever so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us on. See you. Bye.
I've just seen Marigold. It's seven miles from Peckham to Kentish Town. That's quite good. <laughs> I, do you know, I think my route is longer, just not to uh, be a stickler. But, I'm yeah. you did that in 35 minutes. <laughs> on that, I think on that occasion, I, yeah, maybe did jump a few red lights. <laughs> if you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. 